Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. I recently learned some very shocking news. It was shocking to me (laughs) about NFL cheerleaders. Someone asked me if I knew how much NFL cheerleaders made. And, you know, I figured, well, they probably make at least six figures because football players, you know, they're making millions of dollars every year. Well, no. Most, if not all, NFL cheerleaders are cheerleading as a side hustle. They have another job because they're only paid about $150 a game. I was blown away by this. Lauren, I I honestly don't totally know how I feel about this because it is a little bizarre to think of someone making buttloads of money just, you know, wearing skimpy clothing and, you know, doing some cool moves (laughs) and like waving pom-poms. At the same time, like to only make $150 $150 a game when the guys on the field are making millions feels wrong. Yeah, but <laughs> this is where Lauren disagrees with me. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't have football players, you can't have football games. If you didn't have cheerleaders, the game would go on like normal. One is a little bit more important to the actual game itself. I, I agree with that. I totally agree with it. I just feel like there should be like some... You know, obviously it's not going to be equal because football players do put in legitimately way more work than cheerleaders. Um, and, you know, their bodies are getting so banged up and all of that. Uh, but, like, man, it just feels like it should be slightly more Virginia, equal. is this turning some, like, lefty equal payday uh, for cheerleaders? <laughs> make a sign. <laughs> yeah. The next Women's March. The other of my sign talking just, about NFL cheerleaders. Not quite. No, no, no. But I, I just... I'm just really surprised. I'm like, you would think in the NFL that, you know, they at least make like 500 bucks a game, right? Like, dang. I mean, like 150, that's like enough to go get dinner afterwards and pay for gas if you're in some of these fancy cities. I don't know. From D.C. out to FedEx Field, I don't think you could even get there for 150 bucks. <laughs> that's true. Uh, I've always understood it growing up um, that a lot of these people are fitness instructors or they have some other sort of side hustle and or main hustle and they use this as like a way to promote themselves right like yeah because if you were going to get uh, personal training would you rather get personal training from some random person or somebody who's a cheerleader for an nfl team sort of like free advertising yeah yeah no i i could see it as that um interesting side hustle like yeah. that is a very unique side hustle yeah. among side hustles to have yeah. and like i'm an nfl cheerleader, cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> wow all right well we are going to talk a little bit more about football a lot more about football. a lot more about football <laughs> i get like on one show. show a year where we get to talk about football <laughs> just let lauren have this moment <laughs> just let her have it all right but lauren what do we have queued up on today's show up on today's problematic women title nine protections for women are being threatened we explain why and the role that we can all play this week in protecting the privacy of female-only spaces and women's sports. We also break down President Biden's recent speech, and like we just mentioned, football is back. We tell you what you need to know, and as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of interest to you, to problematic women, to conservative women, and to really break down those views and opinions that are so often excluded by those on the feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it.
Biden administration is seeking to redefine gender and sex. The president thinks gender identity and sexual orientation should trump biological sex. And Biden is going so far as to try to rewrite an important education amendment to expand the definition of gender beyond male and female. The amendment is known as Title IX. And you all may remember that we've talked a little bit about Title IX on this show before. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Title IX acts as a protection for women's education and sports opportunities. The education amendment was set in place in 1972. Title IX requires that there be equal opportunities for men and women in schools across the country. So under Title IX, it's illegal for a school to, for example, offer boys five different sports options but only one for girls. There has to be some level of equality. So essentially, Title IX, it creates equality. It creates equal opportunities for men and women in the education space. So here with us to talk about some important developments on this issue is the one and only Sarah Partial-Perry, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, thank you so much for being back with us. Thank you for having <laughs> me back. You know, I love being in here with you guys. Well, we love having Sarah you. Sarah is definitely one of the most problematic people in the Heritage oh, Foundation. Oh, yes. 100%. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> so... President Biden is trying to amend Title IX. Sarah, can you just walk us through a little bit of what his reasoning is and what he's actually trying to do? A couple of changes with Title IX. The biggest one, as you mentioned, is expanding the definition of sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, that's a real problem for a very short federal civil rights law that is only a paragraph long and was passed as a result of the women's liberation movement. Women and men had distinctly different educational opportunities. For example, women couldn't go to certain graduate programs. They weren't allowed to compete in athletics. So it was really designed to rectify that, to give men and women equal opportunities. So defining it now to include gender identity is going to have a host of ramifications, everything from bathrooms and sports to single-sex admissions, dormitories, housing, you name it. It's going to be incredibly significant. And we're already seeing a pause and what they issued from the Department of Education. It's called interpretive guidance. And that's just a letter from the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cordona, saying we are going to interpret Title IX for all intents and purposes as meaning sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, a federal judge just put that interpretive guidance on hold, which means we are still under the Trump era interpretation until we see this finalized rule come out. And the comment period for the rule for the public to weigh in and give their opportunity to basically express concerns about the rule is September 12th. So we're definitely coming up close to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Explain a little bit about this public comment. And so there's an opportunity for the general public to weigh in on these very important issues and either say, yes, we should do this. I'm all for it. Or these are the concerns I have. This is why I don't want these changes to be made. So in the case of Title IX, there has been an opening for the public to weigh in. Right. How closely are these public comments actually considered? Like if enough people commented, would they legitimately say, "Okay, we're not moving forward with these changes? Well, it's interesting you should say that. I've been asked that a lot. They are required under a law called the Administrative Procedure Act. And that law guides the process of making a new rule for any federal agency because we want what the federal government does to be transparent, to be open. We want an opportunity to weigh in. It's 
5 USC Section 551, if anyone wants to look that up. (laughs) But it basically requires the federal agency to take every public comment into account in the development of any new and proposed rule. So back in June, on the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year, they launched 701 pages of proposed changes to Title IX. We've had 60 days or thereabouts to comment as members of the public, organizations, members of Title IX coalitions. That window closes September 12th. And then it might be another year to 18 months plus until we see a finalized rule come out. Could it stop it? Unlikely. I think the administration is going to find a way to accomplish what it wants to under this law. After all, it's used the CDC eviction moratorium, the OSHA vax mandate, and the EPA Clean Air Act to be able to push through what they wanted. So I don't see this having any significant effect in stopping it, but it will certainly slow it down. And as of this morning, 349 thousand comments have been submitted. To give you sort of a comparative basis, when I was under the Trump administration at Department of Ed, we received 124,000 comments for a rule protecting those accused of sexual assault and harassment on campus. This is one of the most significant numbers we've seen come through the Federal Register portal. How many of those were from you? I mean, a lot. I had a lot to say. (laughs) Copy, paste, click, copy, paste, click. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, and I I went through it this morning because I was like, you know, doing something like leaving a public comment on this government website. I'm like, this seems complicated. But it's actually pretty simple. Yes. Um, And I'll I'll put a link in the show notes so anyone can do it. I think from beginning to end, it took me about five or ten minutes. There's a bunch of templates online. I'll link those as well. And it sort of guides you through, okay, kind of fill in here what your concerns are, you know, use this language. Um, But really all you're doing is saying, hey, I think it's a bad idea for us to change the definition of sex, yes. and this is why. <laughs> yes, and there are so many other implications from religious liberty to free speech to due process to parents' rights. It really is a nightmare. So obviously you guys will link through to the information that people will need to take a look at, but you can pick any one of its problems mm-hmm. and submit a comment to the federal government that they have to read. Yeah, yeah. how satisfying is that knowing that some government bureaucrat has to read your comment and respond to each one? <laughs> having, having been one of those government bureaucrats, I can tell you it is an arduous process. (laughs) And I want to highlight the fact that, Sarah, you said, you know, probably the result of this is going to be a slowing down and how significant that could be for a high school senior who this process being slowed down could mean her having to compete against a biological male or not and get a scholarship or not. So we're talking about real life effects on people. And I, I have three public school teenagers. My daughter is my middle child. She just made the varsity volleyball team. I do not want her. She will be happy to know you said that. Thank you. Um, she she ought not to have to compete against a biological male yeah. to be able to get a spot on a roster to play the sport she loves. Absolutely. All right. Well, we were going to leave all that information in the show notes so you can see how you can uh, leave your comment and we'll put in templates so you can see how you can do it. Not how you can see, how you, you can, can do it. You can do it. Not just see. Do it. 
Do it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Shia LaBeouf. All right. Well, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and want to find other like-minded podcasts, then look no further than She Thinks. She Thinks is a podcast product of the Independent Women's Forum. And every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern, Beverly Hallberg, who we loved having on the show last week, is joined by policymakers and thought leaders to cut through the spin and bring you facts on the issues that matter most from the economy and education to foreign policy and everything in between she thinks has you covered and if you can't wait for that new episode to drop then you can listen to past episodes at iwf.org or you can search for she thinks podcast in your favorite podcast app If you are on social media, and especially if you're a right of center on social media, you've probably seen this image of President Biden delivering a speech, and it really looks completely dystopian. So the president delivered a speech on Thursday night at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and there was a bright red light that sort of cascaded on this brick wall behind him. Um, And it was this really wild image as he was standing up there making the claim that MAGA Republicans are the biggest threat to our nation. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. So in my opinion, I watched this speech, and honestly, as I was watching it, I just got angrier and angrier (laughs) because it was the most divisive speech I have ever heard a president deliver. And I think the fact that uh, he has from day one claimed to seek unity, claimed to be a president of unity, and and even at the beginning of his speech talked about the beauty of America and the, the necessity of us coming together as a nation. And then to isolate millions of Americans who support, have supported Donald Trump and say that they are the issue, they are a threat to our country. How divisive is that? Yeah, I I would go so far as to call him divider in chief, which Mm -hmm. is unfortunate. But this is a president who hasn't kept his promises on quite a number of things, not the least of which was that he was the party of moderation. He was running on a moderate platform. And we've seen one of the most aggressive, socially progressive outcomes from this administration, even starting with his first few executive orders after his swearing in that it does not surprise me that we got to this point. I will say a couple of things struck me. You mentioned sort of the description visually of how it looked. It could have passed for 1938 Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the use of two U.S. Marines as sort of nutcracker props in the background, I found particularly despicable. But I think when he tags the 74 million Americans mm-hmm. who voted for President Donald Trump as semi-fascists or divided of the nation, not only does it make him look like he's unable to let go mm-hmm. of the fact that this was our previous sitting president, but it also sets him up for what I'm quite certain is a future conflict if Donald Trump decides to run again in the future. And listen, Biden's approval rating is just barely 40 percent and only 13 percent of registered Democrats think the country is in a good Mm. place. This is an individual who has not done what he promised, and he is failing miserably at his job. This I think, was the capstone on what will be seen sort of as the legacy he leaves behind. Yeah. 
and the fact that he did this all using public dollars. This was a speech that he gave as under the banner of being the president of the United States. This was not a campaign event. This is something that you paid for through your tax dollars. And he stood in front of Independence Hall, which is you know one of the greatest symbols of, of our liberty and, and how our founding fathers really thought to have this government that can be divided but still come together. And, and it's proven over 250 years up to be a pretty good system. <laughs> and the fact that Biden and, and I almost wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt for this speech because the speech was, quote unquote, to restore the soul of America. And I was thinking maybe he'll come out and talk about opioids and how we because you think more people between the ages of 18 and 45 died of opioids than COVID over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. We have this huge epidemic and just to see him come up and within two minutes just start slamming on MAGA Republicans and MAGA Republicans and it seemed juvenile and I do Sarah, you said 40% of Americans support him and that sounds right, but I just can't imagine that 40% of Americans would watch that speech and and agree with him and and want to bash the, the other side like that. Well, again, we're looking at 74 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, mm. whether or not they would categorize themselves as MAGA Republicans or not. The fact of the matter is they chose Donald Trump over Joe Biden, mm. which makes him look like a sore winner. Yeah. He's already in the White House. It's very clear that what he was rambling on about, because there were sort of fits of incoherency, which we're seeing an increasing volume as he gets up to stand in front of the public, it really does sort of drive a wedge between even the moderate Democrats and the Republicans themselves. In fact, 64 percent of Democrats want a different candidate in 2024. Mm -hmm. So he's not even making allies among the registered base that elected him in the first place. Nothing good can conceivably come of that speech. Yeah. And I would love, honestly, to be a fly on the wall in the White House because I do question how much of this rhetoric is coming straight from Biden and how much is the influence of very, very far left radicals in the White House who are pushing a very specific agenda and they're almost using him as a mouthpiece to push Mm -hmm. a message. Yes. And it's really disgusting. Yeah, it is. Well, I think that goes to the the Democrats seem to have this like, oh, it's my turn to be president, right? It was Hillary Clinton's turn and it was her rightful place. And Joe Biden has been a senator since he was 30 years old. And so now it's just his turn. And he just waited so long that now the lights are on, but nobody's home. And it is scary that there are people around him who push to divide America like this, because this is not just a political stunt gone awry that's embarrassing for Biden. This has long-term implications for our country. When he's talking about violent extremism, he is using a double-edged messaging tactic because he goes continuously to the issue of January 6th. And I'm not downplaying the significance of that event, but he has said nothing about Antifa or Black Lives Matter riots. And we had those for two consecutive summers. They were called mostly peaceful. He has said nothing about the assassination attempt on a sitting Supreme Court justice's life. Mm -hmm. He has said nothing about the rash of attacks against crisis pregnancy centers, houses of worship. This is an individual who is picking whatever particular talking point he wants and the truth be hanged. Yeah. Well, on a little bit of a lighter note, (laughs) I want to talk about uh, something that, you know, um, is not, it can be in some circles as divisive as politics, but hopefully overall it just unifies us as a country, and that's football. Mm. (laughs) 
I love football. (laughs) (laughs) People could be like, what you do over the long week? And I was like, I watch football. And they're like, yeah, but like, what did you do? I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I watched like 12 plus hours of football. Lauren, that's, and that's this a is lot college. Of this is college football. Oh, this is college. Well, the, yeah. There, for, what for other, con- what other kind of football is there? And we're going to talk about NFL in a second. But <laughs> take us away with college football, Lauren. What do we need to know right now? So this weekend, week one. So there was, <laughs> in college football, there's week zero, and those games. It's called football. Very happy that it was back, but they were kind of boring. Week one was set up to be like, okay, it's cool. These games are better. Oh, my goodness. The drama of week one, college football, was just, I kept calling my dad to be like, did you see that game? Did you see that game? And he was like, yeah. I I love that. There were so many games where the teams, it was kind of this underdog story where they would go and they would be down by his touchdown and they would drive down the field and they would score the touchdown and then... The kicker kicked it wide, right? <laughs> That's happened like three times. ECU kept like their team kept marching them down the field and their offense was doing such a good job. And twice their kicker missed the field goal to have them lose the game. So I would say this is the weekend of the teams that almost did, Aww. but didn't. <laughs> I wish people could see you talking, Lauren, how animated you are. Oh, like Lauren is talking with oh, her yes. hands. Like she oh, is 100%. And I'm going to two UCF football games Ooh. in the next two weeks. Wow. So living your best life. Oh my gosh. Well, and it just happened to be that I had a flight down to Orlando on Friday, um, September 9th to go to the UCF Louisville game. I am like, was, I'm sure it's going to be the best game of the year. <laughs> if, unless UCF loses. But I was, I'm very excited. And I, it just happened that Heritage is, is hosting an event with Governor DeSantis on September Ooh, 9th. Perfect. And they're like in Orlando and they're like, hey, can you come? And I'm like, well, funny thing is I actually already have a ticket and I'm going to be in Orlando at that time. And I'm like, as long as, long as I'm done by 5 p.m., I'm, I'm yours. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, high holy hour of yeah. getting to the stadium on time. Yeah. Exactly. Now, Sarah, is, is there a big football culture in the Partial Perry household? Um, yes, extremely. But I'm going to tell you, we are very loyal to the Green Bay Packers. And that's what uh, I predominantly watch. I yep. grew up just outside Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised on the green and gold. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I actually was just at the University of Wisconsin for a college visit for my oldest Aww. because he is getting ready to go off next year and Aww. UW is his number one choice. Aww. So we got a chance to talk Packer football with a lot of the people that we ran <laughs> into there. Awesome. And they are serious about their culture of football. Oh, 100%. So, yeah. Packers I mean, fans don't play. You no, guys are dedicated. No, they do not. No, they do not. And my grandfather was a football coach at Iowa State and he oh, also wow. coached uh, at Carroll University uh, and Northern Illinois U- University. And my uh, uncle was an All-American at Colorado State. Um, So I grew up, like, with football culture. So I got to tell you, the boys always look at me and laugh and say, Mom, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And I I did at one point. I was very serious about it. But to this day, I will watch every Packer game that's on. That's awesome. Uh, And I can appreciate Packer fans because they really are. Franchise owners, baby. It's true. And like you enjoy watching football and drinking Miller Lite. And that is like the way to do it. Yep. Because uh, some of these other like NFL fans, like, you know, like. What, what are you trying to say, like Lauren? Patriot fans. What are you trying to say? <laughs> what are you trying to say, huh? <laughs> well, for, for our NFL fans out there, um, unfortunately, 
The Patriots, I think the Patriots, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak on that. I was going to say maybe they had the first game of the season last year. But anyway, it's, it's the Bills and the Rams that are heading off the NFL season actually tonight, Thursday night. Um, and, but, you know, that's was, kind wasn't of, it who, Patriots Bucks to start the year last it, year? You know, and it was like a big been, Tom Brady game. That might have been the case. Yeah, I think I think, I think you're right. I think you're I think right. we talked about it. Was, it on the show. I think we did. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so NFL's coming back, and the big games are all happening on Sunday. There's going to be 14 NFL games played that day, including uh, for for my Tom Brady fans out there at 8:20 p.m. You can catch the Bucks playing the Cowboys. I think the Patriots play around. 1 p.m. I did not look at what time the Green Bay Packers play. I'm sorry, Sarah. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's it. I'm never coming back here. This is over. But you see, that's already the problem with the NFL. Like, it's not even you're a fan of a team. You're a fan of a player. Well, you know, and a team. I just... I, I mean, let's, you know. let's be honest. Aaron Rodgers, in large part, carries the Packers. Mm. But I have been a Packer fan mm. since way back in the day. I mean, Brett Favre was my <laughs> original Packer crush, okay? Aww. So we have always... But him in those, like, Lev- Levi's jeans, like... Yeah. I, yeah, that is a good crush. <laughs> <laughs> Problematic woman approved. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. All right, well, stay tuned, because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to Pamela Rickard. Sarah, so you recently wrote a piece for the Daily Signal about Pamela Rickard. Pamela was a teacher for 17 years before she was somewhat recently suspended from her job. Can you let us know what happened? So the uh, Geary County School District in Fort Riley, Kansas, instituted a new policy. Number one, that all teachers and administrators had to use preferred pronouns of the students that had expressed them. And number two, that they were not to use any of the new gender identity information when dealing with the students' parents. So you can see it's problematic on two fronts. Speaking of problematic women, (laughs) number one, you're forcing them to say something that's not true on the one hand and preventing them from saying something that is true on the other. Well, Pamela had had enough of this. And after 17 years as a middle school math teacher, she was approached by two transgender students who requested that she use their preferred pronouns. She refused to do it. And essentially, this ended up in federal court. What her response was through her attorney in seeking uh, a suspension of the policy and seeking what's called a permanent injunction was basically that it was a violation of her 14th Amendment equal protection and due process rights. It was a violation of the First Amendment free speech right and a violation of the First Amendment's free exercise right. So the judge said, listen, I don't even have to get to freedom of speech or equal protection, but I am going to rule simply on the basis of your religious belief, because she is, of course, a Christian and said lying is wrong, and I believe in the 
the immutable reality of biological male and femalehood that she was likely to succeed. So they let the lawsuit proceed. The school dropped the communications policy with the parents. Litigation sort of trickled on for a few more months. And eventually they decided to settle with her for $95,000 and revoke wow. the preferred pronoun policy as well. So is she getting her job back? She is not. She's now retired. Okay. She has decided to retire after all of this, which yeah. I'm sure I was don't blame her. <laughs> entirely exhaustive. But as part of the settlement, they issued a formal notice that she was under no disciplinary action mm-hmm. and had an exemplary record for 17 years. Wow. So she held fast. She actually, in her opinion, the judge uh, issued... She relied on a case called Meriwether versus Hartop, which came out of the Sixth Circuit uh, about 18 months ago, which I've also written on. That was a professor at Shawnee State University who also refused to use preferred pronouns on the basis of the First Amendment freedom of speech and free exercise of religion. He was victorious in the Sixth Circuit, and this federal court judge in Kansas relied on that court case to find in her favor. So it was a tremendously positive outcome. And do you think that this will have ripple effects in other school districts across the country where we've seen similar situations play out of teachers being fired or put on you know, a temporary suspension for refusing to use preferred pronouns? I am hoping that it will be now that we have two federal court precedents on the books in two different districts. I know Peter Vlaming, our beloved French teacher who also <laughs> lost his job, whose case is ongoing still, is now in front of the Fourth Circuit and his litigation is underway. I am hoping that these two cases are going to incentivize the panel to rule the right way in his case. However, here's where we can come all the way back full circle to Title mm. IX under the Biden administration's new proposed regulation. It would mandate preferred pronoun use because to fail to use preferred pronouns would be discriminatory under Title IX. So again, that's why we want people to comment and why we want people to hold fast to what we know are enduring fundamental constitutional principles. And so if Title IX gets changed, but these courts keep ruling and creating precedent for this, could that potentially come together and go all the way to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. And I think what we're going to see if the Title IX rule is ultimately finalized and published in the Federal Register, you're going to see a flurry of litigation right away. And the same 16 states that sued the Department of Ed over their interpretive guidance, the informal letter that came first, are going to be exactly those same 16 who are going to say, we can't comply with our state law and the federal constitution and Title IX at the same time. You have set up a mess that we can't unthread. Mm. Sir, you make this exciting like football. I, know. I mean, <laughs> I feel really kind know. of passionately <laughs> about the Constitution. Let's get the play-by-play. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It is always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. You know I love it here. <laughs> and uh, go Pack Go. <laughs> I, I went to, I was like, hey, Sarah, can you come on the show? And I didn't even like ask like when, what we're talking about. She was just like, yeah, I'll do it. So. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us on Tuesday morning for an interview. And then, of course, next Thursday for a brand new edition. But in the meantime, subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great rest of your week, weekend, and we'll see you right back here next week.
Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.